Robert Peterson, a professor of systematic theology at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, gives the following illustration at the beginning of a book he wrote more than 15 years ago. And here's the illustration. The date is September 1, 1983. Put yourself in the place of three different people on this fateful day. First, imagine you are the pilot of a Korean Airlines Flight 007 traveling from Anchorage to Seoul. This flight begins just as the thousands of others you have flown. You follow procedures to the letter, but something goes wrong. Your instruments mal malfunction, though you don't become aware of it until it's too late. In your hands, rest the lives of your crew and 269 passengers. Second, picture yourself as a passenger on this flight. You board the aircraft, eager to return to your family in Seoul. You have been away on a business for a week and really miss them. You can hardly wait to hold your wife in your arms and to see the shining faces of your children. You can almost hear the squeals of your little girls who are always so happy to see you. How good it will be to share a meal together and catch up on what has been going on in their lives. You gaze out the window, as is your custom, until you fall asleep, never suspecting the horror to which you will awaken. Third, imagine you are the wife of the businessman just mentioned. You rose early this morning to make sure everything would be perfect for your husband's return. You bathed the girls and dressed them nicely and spent extra time preparing to look your, your best. You have cooked his favorite meal and are anxiously awaiting your family's reunion. Girls, you call out, it's time to go to the airport to get daddy. How will you ever console them when they learn their father is not coming home? Who will fill the void in your own life? Little did the pilot and passengers of the Korean Airlines 747 or their relatives realize what the day would bring when they awoke on September 1st, 1983. All envisioned an uneventful flight from Anchorage to Seoul. Korean Airlines 007 would stray far off its intended course, however and be shot down by a Soviet, Soviet Su-15 interceptor missile, killing the pilot, the crew, and all 269 passengers. No one could foresee the immeasurable consequences of taking that flight. Trusting the faulty information of his instruments, the pilot steered his plane into disaster. With complete confidence in the pilot and the crew to return him to his family, the businessman slept peacefully. His wife and children thought of one thing only on their way to the airport, a joyful reunion. Robert Peterson goes on and says, there's a day of even greater unforeseen catastrophe in store for men and women who die without Christ. Little do they imagine the horror that awaits them Though the church has traditionally taught that the fate of the lost is eternal punishment, fewer and fewer people are willing to think seriously 
about that dreadful prospect. Can the future of unbelievers really be that bad? Today, a growing number of theologians, says Peterson, are answering no. Well, since Scripture gives us very clear teachings on hell today and next week, I would like to address this doctrine of hell. I encourage you to open Scripture to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 8, from chapter 8, verse 15 through 13. And then we'll turn to Revelation chapter 20, from verse 7 to 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 841. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13. Here's the word of the Lord for us. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at, the home, at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done to you as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now turn to Revelation chapter 20. You may find this passage in the Bible provided in the church in front of you on page 1074. Revelation chapter 20. We'll be reading from verse 7 to verse 15. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. 
Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, would you awaken our consciences? Would you awaken our minds to the terrible future of all those who die without Christ? Father, I pray that you would use this word right now to our ears to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray and for his glory. Amen. David Wells, who teaches at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, once said, It may seem on the surface that little is lost and much is gained if the embarrassing truth about hell is allowed to suffer from a little benign neglect in the church. The church, it might be thought, has said enough on this subject in the past ages. Today, such talk has a strange and unfriendly ring to it. And no one, and one quite incompatible with a program of marketing the church. Well, despite the growing impression among Christians and theologians that the doctrine of hell is not only unessential, but that is unfriendly and an obstacle to the Christian faith, today I would like to raise the question, hell, why does it matter? Scripture gives us a number of reasons, and today we would look at four reasons, and there are more, some are longer than others. I will try to go through them and show you four reasons why the doctrine of hell matters for us as Christians. First and foremost, because the first reason is this, because Jesus presented hell as the only alternative to belonging to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself presented hell as the only alternative to the kingdom of heaven. And if I don't get through the other four reasons, that's okay, but I want you to get this one. In other words, Jesus is saying that the world is divided in only two categories. Those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. Now, I know today we live in a day when we believe in hybrid stuff. Getting the, the, the best of both worlds. But Jesus is reminding us that when it comes to our eternal state... There are only two ways, and they're mutually exclusive. Either one or the other. Now let's look at Matthew 8, how Jesus talks about this. Jesus just finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He came down from the mountain and went into Capernaum, and he was met by a Roman centurion. And the centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant, who was lying paralyzed at home. 
And Jesus was willing to go to his home. But the centurion said, no, don't go. Now, if I was a centurion, I would have just let Jesus do his thing. But not the centurion. He believed Jesus had such a high authority that he could say a word, and on that word, his servant would be healed. The centurion's reply startled Jesus so much that he gives a very interesting conclusion. Look at verse 10 and 11. I tell you the truth, I have not found one person, anyone in Israel, with such a great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now this picture of many coming from the east and the west and taking their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is an echo from the book of Isaiah chapter 25 when God foretold a time when the nations will gather to revere the Lord and, will be, and the nations will be invited to the great banquet God will be preparing for his people. And Jesus looks at the faith of this centurion and exclaims, that time has now finally come. This is a key turning point in the salvation history. The faith of the Gentiles starts surpassing the faith of the Israelites. Now, if that's all Jesus said, we would be happy that God is fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. That the nations will be saved. But that is not the only thing Jesus teaches in this passage. Look at verse 12. Jesus goes on and he says, But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, who are the subjects of the kingdom? Well, here in this passage, Jesus is referring to the nation of Israel. Those who were first called to belong to the kingdom of God, but who rejected the Christ. Notice what is their destiny for rejecting Christ. To be thrown outside the banquet, the party, into darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is not the first time Jesus taught about hell. He actually began teaching about hell in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember, a few weeks ago, we went for 10 weeks uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And again, in verse 29 of the same chapter, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And Jesus repeats that same principle again in verse 30. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus alludes to the destruction of those who bear bad fruit. He says in chapter 7, verse 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. And then when Jesus gives a final illustration of the Sermon on the Mount, the final illustration of the sermon, he gives the picture of two houses. And the final house, built on a sand, he says, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Friends, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus alluding to hell 
five times in one sermon. The only sermon that we have recorded fully in the Gospels presented by Jesus is a sermon in which Jesus alludes to hell five times. And when the sermon is over and he meets, he goes down the mountain, he, he meets his centurion, he gets to talk about hell again. It's as if Jesus starts talking about hell every time he has an opportunity. He sounds like an old-fashioned Baptist preacher. And then in, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, let me just read through some, some, some places in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 13, 40 through 43. Jesus saw it, said, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, they will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Then again in verses 49 and 50 in the same chapter, chapter 13, Jesus says, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 23, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he gives them a very stern warning. He says in verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. And then verse 33, he says to them, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? What is amazing here is that Jesus tells us very clearly that hell will be populated not just by atheists, Hell will be populated not just by agnostics. Hell will be populated not just by immoral people. Hell will be populated by very religious people. But whose religion is a mere sham or hypocrisy. Listen again to Matthew 24, verse 51. Jesus says, He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, belonging to the kingdom of heaven allows no room for hypocrites. Yes, here on earth, the hypocrites are mixed with the true people of God. Yes, here on earth, the, the hypocrites belong to the same church. They do the same things together with other Christians. But nevertheless, their fellowship is only temporary because God will not put up with hypocrites forever. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives, up the par gives a parable of three servants. Two were faithful in what the Lord entrusted to them, and the third, he did not waste the king's resources. He kept it secure, but he failed to use it as the king expected. So Jesus says in Matthew 25, 30, Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And later in the same chapter, Jesus gives us a picture of the sheep and the goats representing the righteous and the wicked. And he says about the wicked in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, 
you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, then he will go away, and they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now friends, all of these verses that I just read to you are from the Gospel of Matthew. I could read to you other references from the Gospel of Mark, from the Gospel of Luke, and from the Gospel of John. These are just from Matthew. But here's the point. If we look at the entire Bible, no one has spoken so often about hell as Jesus did. Jesus spoke more often about hell than any other prophet. Why? Why is it that the one who loved us so much that he died for us was also the one who warned us most about hell? What Jesus is teaching about hell was an act of his love for us. Warning about hell was the way he was trying to awaken the consciences of his people, of Israel, of the teachers of the law, and now our own minds. Jesus believed hell is real. Jesus believed that to reject him would lead people at the end of the age to be thrown into hell. And Jesus believed hell is the only alternative to the kingdom of heaven. So not responding to his call means that our eternity will be eternal damnation. These were the words of Jesus. People say, what about the innocent man from the tribe of Africa who never heard about the kingdom of heaven? What about him? Will he go to hell? Well, last week at the conference we attended, a conference entitled Together for the Underestimated Gospel, a preacher you may have heard about, David Platt, gave a brilliant answer. That innocent man from Africa would go to heaven. The problem is, there is no innocent man in Africa. For the scripture says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why the command for missions is so important. If people don't hear about the kingdom of heaven, how and how they can get there, they're doomed to eternal damnation. Only those who respond to Jesus by faith and repentance will be invited to the great banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even the Israelites who were subjects of the kingdom will not make it into that great supper unless they respond to Christ by faith and response and repentance. That's the first reason why hell is important for us to realize. Because Jesus presented hell as the only alternative to belonging to the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the second reason. Because hell is a place of torment for Satan and his kingdom. When people think about hell, some think that they're experiencing hell here on earth because they're going through so much pain and suffering. But that's not exactly how Scripture talks about hell. If we look in the, the book of Revelation, there are many details we will not have time today to unpack. But let me just say the following. God, John sees God, or John sees a day when God will punish Satan for all his deception. Look at verse 10 in Revelation 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown they will be tormented day and night forever 
and ever. This is a very important information about hell. Friends, it means that hell is not the realm of Satan's kingdom. Friends, hell is not the place where the devil is the boss. We may have grown up with a picture of hell as a place where the devil stands with a pitchfork and in charge. But that's a wrong picture. The devil is not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell. And God will throw Satan and the beast and the false prophet into hell to torment them. Friends, God prepared hell as the place where he would punish Satan forever and ever and ever and ever. Think with me for a moment. When a demon-possessed man can make someone's life like hell on earth, when a man possessed by a legion of demons can be so powerful that no human force can control him, what kind of force is needed to torment Satan himself and his angels? If demons can endure suffering and if they can cause so much suffering, how terrible must hell be if that will be the place of torment even for Satan and his angels? Satan and his angels are not the only ones thrown into hell. Verse 14 tells us that death and the Hades were thrown into the lake of fire as well. This means that death itself, the power of death, and the Hades, which is the place of death, will also be thrown into hell. Friends, let me just ask you, what kind of place will hell be if even death itself will be co-signed to it? Some people object to the notion of hell as being incompatible with the notion of God's goodness. They say, how can God, a good God, allow hell to exist? Well, the answer is very simple. If God is eternally good, how could he tolerate evil? I like what Wayne Crudem said in his systematic theology. Eternal punishment is good and right because in God there is no unrighteousness at all. If there would be unrighteousness, he would no longer be God. In other words, the eternal torment of the devil displays the eternal righteousness and power of God. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 19, uh, verse 1 through 3, we're told that the great multitude in heaven is praising God and shouting the following words, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His ways. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Do you see why this great multitude in heaven is praising God? Because they see the great and majestic God tormenting the, ange the agents of evil forever and ever. It is because God is eternally good that in the end, he will punish the devil, the beast, and the false prophets. But hell is not only the place of torment prepared for Satan and his angels. Hell is also the place of torment for all those whose names are not found in the book of life. The third reason why we need to be aware about the doctrine of hell and we need to care about it is because anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be consigned 
to this place of eternal torment. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus told his disciples that a time will come when God will say to those who, who did not serve him, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Yes, the, the, the fire of hell was not prepared for you and I. It was initially prepared for, the, for Satan and his angels. But anyone who refuses Christ will end up there as well. It is hard for us to listen to this message, but these are the words of Jesus. Hell is not reserved only for those who are evildoers, but for all those who refuse to respond to the call of the kingdom, for all those who do not follow the king, for all those who are living in a life of hypocrisy. Friends, you do not need to rob a bank or to kill someone in order to go to hell. Jesus taught us that even the most religious people can end up there. If their religion is a mere sham, a mere superficiality that does not make an impact in their lives, if their lives, their spiritual lives, is characterized by duplicity. So the big question is not how good you think you are. The big question is, is your name written in the book of life? And finally, the final reason why we need to care about the doctrine of hell is because it is an eternal place. It is an eternal place. Why do I sing, say this? Revelation says very clearly that the torment will be forever and ever. It's going to be an eternal torment, not simply a place of destruction. There are some people who think about hell as a place of destruction. And that's called annihilationism. That God will just destroy evil in the end. But that's not exactly what Jesus said. Jesus believed that hell was not only a place of destruction, but an eternal experience of torment, of indescribable pain and suffering. Mark 9, 42 and 48 says that where the fire describes hell as a place where the fire never goes out, as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Friends, this is not just a picture of day after day after day after day of torment until you one day you finish the punishment and you have paid your guilt. No. Jesus describes hell as millions of years after millions of years after millions of years after millions of years after millions of years. And we could stay on for another hour and repeat those words and it would not finish. That's the eternal torment that God prepared for the devil because he rebelled against God, he corrupted God's creation, and God has an unending eternal place for him. But anyone who does not respond to God's gracious way of escaping the wrath of God will also be doomed there. Not because God is not good. God is so good that he provided a way for you and I to escape that wrath. But so many people, and perhaps you this morning as well, think that hell is not real or think that there's no way God can be good and also believe in hell. Friends, let me conclude this morning with an illustration from Martin Luther. If a doctor enabled, able to help were at the side of a sick person and promised to help him from his trouble and advised him how to combat his ailment or the poison he has taken, and if the sick person knew that the doctor could help him, but nonetheless said, 
Oh, get out of here. I won't accept your advice. You're, not, you're no doctor, but a highwayman. I'm not sick, nor have I taken poison. It will not hurt me. And if the sick person wanted to kill the doctor, would you not say that this fellow who persecuted and wanted to kill his doctor was not only a sick person, but demented, mentally mad, and irrational as well? But the spiritual madness that we do not want to accept help when God's Son wants to help us is ten times worse. Should our Lord God not be angry and let hellfire, sulfur, and pitch rain upon such ingrates? For besides being sinners, we are also so wretched as to reject help and chase away and kill those who urge us to accept it. Friend, at the end of this message, let me ask you, do you know if your name is written in the book of life? I'm not asking you if you think you're a good person. I'm not asking you if you think you are religious. I'm asking you, do you have the assurance that your name has been written in the book of life? That is the only thing that matters on that day. If you do not have this assurance, let me urge you, do not be like the sick man in Luther's illustration. Do not try to argue with God and try to disbelieve what God himself has declared through Jesus Christ. God's goodness is displayed in that one day he will set on all unrighteousness to a place of torment. But until that day comes, his goodness is manifested in offering us the day, a way to escape the wrath to come. The way to escape God's wrath is to believe that God sent his son to take upon himself the wrath that we deserved and that he gave us the perfection that we lacked but desperately needed. If you believe that Christ is the only way to escape the wrath of God, then turn away from your sin and, be, and follow Christ. Begin following Christ. Surrender your life to him. Give up your own rights to your life and ask Christ to start taking charge. And when you respond to God's offer of salvation through faith and repentance, God gives us graciously and freely a new nature a new birth, and we show publicly this new birth through being baptized by immersion. We show this new birth by belonging to the people of God and through the progressive transformation of our daily lives. Friends, if you'd like to respond to God today, come and talk to me at the end of the service. Some of you have gone through these steps in the past, but your conscience is bothering you right now. You don't have the assurance that your name is in the book of life. Or you may have the assurance, but your life gives no evidence. Something is seriously wrong in both cases. Come and talk to me at the end of the service about your lack of assurance or about your false assurance. Friends, because hell is the only alternative Jesus gave to those who do not follow him, because hell is the only place of torment for Satan, for his demons, because hell is the only place of torment for all those whose names are not found in the book of life, because hell is an eternal state. My friend, don't treat hell lightly. If among all the characters of the Bible, Jesus spoke most often about hell, believing hell to be a real place, 
Why should his followers think any less about it? Let us pray. Merciful God, you are an eternal, good, and gracious God. But in your goodness, you will not allow evil to, to live forever. You will subdue it. You will co-sign it to a place of torment. Gracious God, we praise you for your goodness and power. Gracious God, we praise you that you allowed a way for us to escape that place, to escape that wrath by trusting in Christ. Father, we pray if there's someone here today who has not yet made that response, Lord, we pray that you would convict them. We pray that you would bring them to yourself. We pray that you would give them the new nature 